man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. as we look at this passage this morning. Um, as we were singing, it seemed to me that one of the ways to understand the book of Philemon is that the Apostle Paul essentially says, Philemon, I want you to come with me. I'm going to go sit for a moment at the empty tomb. I want you to come with me And we are going to sit there and see the massive stone that was rolled away. And we're going to peer in and there see that he is not here. He is risen. And Philemon, I want you to just think about what that means. You and I have been to the cross already. And there we've confessed our sins. We've been to the cross already and there we have been healed and we have been made whole again. Philemon, you and I have been to the cross and we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we are forever a child of God and forever saved. But Philemon, I want you to sit with me for a moment beside the empty tomb and peer into that grave that holds him no more. And Philemon, I want you to ask yourself if this God can raise the dead can he change my life and if this god has victory over the grave does he have victory over all the habits and customs and the momentum of the world that is in my life peer into the empty grave with me philemon for it is death that jesus has overcome but he has overcome prejudice and bigotry, and hatred, and spitefulness, and bitterness. He's overcome the vengeance that you justify in your heart. Philemon, come for just a moment, peer into the empty tomb, and wonder what this means. We've been looking at this letter for the past several weeks, and by now you know the, the story Philemon was a rather wealthy man. Uh, He had a large household. He hosted a church in his home. He had enough money to do so. He was a slave owner that put him in the top echelons of society of his day. Uh, He owned um, a man by the name of Onesimus who was a house servant or a bond servant. Uh, He was nonetheless a slave in that uh, Philemon owned him. Uh, The law, society, the nation, everyone agreed that Onesimus did not belong to Onesimus. Onesimus belonged to Philemon. Well, Philemon, uh, or Onesimus at at one point, evidently took some money belonging to Philemon and left town and got away from his bondage. Uh, Wandered into Rome and somehow by the providence of God, he winds up meeting the apostle Paul. Maybe he had seen him earlier and watched him from a distance in the uh, preaching ministry that Paul had there in Philemon's home. But Paul says, uh, Philemon, uh, Onesimus has come to me, and now I am his father. He's been born again. 
I am uh, uh, the, the father of Onesimus in the sense that I got to be there when the life-changing, transforming power of Christ was put on his heart. And Onesimus now is a believer. He's one of our brothers in Christ. And for a while, Paul and Onesimus worked together in, in the ministry that Paul had there in Rome under house arrest. But eventually they agreed that Onesimus should go back to Philemon. Uh, Paul at this time writes the letter of uh, the uh, letter to the Colossians and sends it back with Onesimus and uh, he says take this letter to the Colossians read it to them and Onesimus I want you to take I have a little personal note here give this to Philemon so you can see Onesimus walking into uh, Philemon's house Onesimus says uh, Philemon here is the letter to the Colossians it's going to be a part of the Bible someday it's a really important letter people will study it and get PhDs trying to exegete it Uh, this is a great book Colossians Uh, here it is word of God and oh by the way Master Philemon, here's a personal note to you. It's about me. And someday it will be the word of God. That's how important this note is. And so Paul writes to Philemon and essentially says, Philemon, Christ has decided to pull the rug out from under your complacency. Christ has decided that your comfort zone isn't comfortable anymore. And Jesus has decided to throw a monkey wrench. That's an adjustable spanner, Gareth. Into the gears and into the machinery of your prejudice. I, I've been trying to think of ways that we could understand exactly what, what was going on here. Um, maybe one of the, the, the best pictures we can have of this is just go west a little bit and cross the Potomac. Uh, and there you'll find a little house with a couple of outbuildings around it. It's called Mount Vernon. Uh, Mount Vernon is a plantation house. It belonged to our first president, George Washington. Uh, Mount Vernon, the house itself is, is quite uh, uh, ornate. It's, it's a very comfortable-looking house. It's, it's a very beautiful house, and it's been restored to how it would have looked in the days of George Washington. Uh, and you can go in, and you can take the tour, and you can really admire it. But then go out on the grounds, and you know the, those little curvy breezeways that have the hidden uh, uh, um, handicap ramps on them? Uh, go, uh, go, go down those breezeways and go to the outbuildings at the end and that, that extend back off the property, and you'll come to the kitchen where the food was cooked. You'll come to the laundry where laundry was laundered. And uh, you will uh, also come to shops and places where, where items and implements were made for the plantation, uh, for the use thereof. You'll go into the carriage house, see the beautiful carriages and, and uh, some of the, uh, the tack and the harnesses that are, that are hanging up there. And, and you'll know that this was kept and maintained by the uh, people of Mount Vernon. Um, but what you will discover is that there on Mount Vernon, as beautiful as it is, there were some 300 African-Americans who were in bondage. Uh, you go to the other side of the garden, you'll see the barracks there. Some of you have seen it. You know, the, the, uh, the bunks just piled up on top of each other. You can't get in the little, um, the, the, the little confined space in the attics of the kitchen and, and the laundry area, uh, but that's, that's where the people in bondage, the slaves, would have to sleep. You can't even get up there because it's too small. Uh, the, the houses are in great shape, obviously. The Ladies' Association keeps them such. 
Uh, but there on Mount Vernon, our first president held 300 human beings captive and in bondage. Now, if you're George Washington, you say this. You say, hey, look, I'm not keen on this thing either, but not my fault. Society forces me to do this. The government in Virginia makes it hard to manumit my slaves. And in fact, within a decade of the death of, of George Washington, the government of Virginia made it illegal to set your own slaves free. That's how bad it was. But George Washington say, well, don't blame me. It was a part of my society. It's codified in law. I have provided in my will that they will be set free. I can still do that. A year after Martha dies, uh, they're going to be set free. Um, and, and, you know, th- this whole economic system, there's no way to run a plantation if you don't have this kind of, of labor available. And so, uh, and, and look. Look how well I keep them, why, why uh, the, 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 the accommodations and the housing for the slaves that, that I provide is so nice and it's so good that people will turn them into museum pieces and, you know, be nicely swept and clean and smell good and, and the paint will be on it and people will just admire how well I keep them. There are, there are free farmers out in the western part of Virginia who don't live this well, and that was true for Washington's plantation. What our first president did not realize is that a wealthy man slavery would rather be a free man in poverty. And that when you take freedom away from a human being, you take away their humanity. And there's no excuse for it. But there was a whole mechanism, there was a whole machinery that was justifying slavery in our land. Uh, what we have was called chattel slavery. Slaves were, were, were accounted for the same you would a bag of flour, um, a, a wagon, a chair, something like that. It treated just the same. And that machinery of slavery was so pervasive that even people who claimed to know Christ just accepted it. Because after all, that's the way it was. That's the way things are. That's what we do. And so as George Washington looked out the, the window out on the bowling green and he could look to the left and right and he could see the outbuildings where the slaves were kept, he could sort of take pride in the fact that he was a good master and that he was a good slave owner. But imagine with me, if you will, that one day Jesus knocks on the door of Mount Vernon. The president opens the door. Now, the president has an interesting kind of religion. He goes to church, but he always leaves before the Lord's Supper. He doesn't believe in it. Uh, when he dies, he's going to be buried according to the rites of Freemasonry, not, not according to the rites of the church. But, but he does talk about God. He's written some very beautiful prayers. He talks about Jesus and the morality of Christ and how we ought to follow that. So Jesus knocks on the door. Our first president opens the door and says, Jesus, I'm so glad to see you. Uh, come in. Let's talk together. Uh, Why, even Thomas Jefferson says you're worth listening to. Let's go into my study. Let's sit down and talk. And that's the point at which Jesus looks George in the eye and he says, George, I'm not coming into your house. And turns and he walks to the outbuilding and he walks into the kitchen and he sits down with the cook and he abides with her. That's the moment when he walks out into the fields and he grabs an implement and next to the hands in the field he begins the hard, arduous work that has no payment at the end of it because those are his people. I know this is true 
Because whenever you found Jesus, you found him with the poor. You found him with the lepers. You found him with the beggars who were blind. You found him with the outcasts. You found him with a woman that no one else wanted to be near, but he would talk to her at the, at the well in Samaria. You found Jesus with the wrong people because in his society, in the days of Christ, there was a whole machinery of bigot- bigotry and prejudice. And Jesus came and he threw a monkey wrench into the gears and he stopped them cold. And those who saw him knew that you just couldn't go back and be the same anymore. And the reason we're looking at Philemon is because we, in America especially, we have grown so smug and complacent in our self-righteousness equating our politics and our patriotism with God's word and God's blessing, thinking that because we have more stuff than anybody else in the world, we must be right. We are so immersed in the the values and priorities of our society that we think it is normal. And it's at that point that Jesus pulls the rug out from under us. It's at that moment that he gums up the works. It's at that moment that he throws the spanner into the gears. It's at that moment that he comes up with a metaphor I can't even imagine to say this, I'm not going to take it. And if you love me, you're not going to take it anymore either. Very quickly, let's look at this passage of Scripture. Paul says accordingly. That word accordingly points to the the, the first seven verses. The the Greek word dio there means because of everything I've just said about who you are, Philemon, how much I love you, how much I appreciate your faith and the church and those things that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, uh, Paul says, you know, uh, I could just tell you what to do. I have that kind of authority, not because of who Paul is, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ whom he serves and because of the word of God and those things. He says, so I have the authority to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, your translation might say an ambassador. Uh, That word is used for both of those things. It's related to the word elder. Um, I think Paul is just saying, I, Paul, who am, I'm an old man. Not only that, I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ. You know, Philemon, you're thinking to yourself, I can't, I can't give in. I can't, I can't change things. I can't let people like Onesimus go free. Do you know how much I'll suffer? Do you know the economic impact that will have upon my retirement account? Why, I'll have to work extra years. Why, I, I just might suffer. And Paul says, yeah, that's true, Philemon. I, Paul, understand what you're saying. I, Paul, who am an old man. Did I mention how I got old? Did I mention about being shipwrecked and hungry and under the threat of thieves, the victim of mob violence, stoned and left for dead, imprisoned, chained, manacled? Philemon, did I mention all that? Because I'm an old man now, and that's how I got here. And now I'm a prisoner for Christ. Okay, Philemon, I'm I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead and tell me how hard it is for you to own another human being. Go ahead. He says, no, I 
I could have commanded you, but for love's sake, the love I have for you, the love you say you have for me, and the love we share together for Christ and the love Christ has for you. For the sake of love, Philemon, I'm appealing to you. It's a pretty tough thing when you see the love of Christ like that. The disciples had their whole image of the Messiah just shattered by Jesus. Remember that, don't you? The the disciples thought that um, when Messiah comes, uh, those who are aligned with Messiah are going to be exalted, that Messiah would come and reveal the kingdom, and we all get to sit on a throne, and and we, we all get a crown, and everybody looks at us, and hallelujah, you're a great guy, Peter, you're a great guy, John, Andrew, see you there, looking good, Andrew, Matthew, hey, wow, love your robes, uh, gotta get your tailor, you know, and, and, and so their idea was that to be associated with the Messiah meant that they were going to just, just exist in glory, and that people were just going to be so impressed with them, And Jesus, just before he was arrested, knowing his own and loving them to the bitter end, loving them so much he couldn't stand for them to think like that, got up from dinner. He set aside his clothes and he wrapped a towel around him. And he got a basin of water. He went back in the room and he got on his hands and knees at the first disciple's feet. Now, we don't know who it was, but I can tell you this about that guy's feet. They were not worthy of Jesus. But on his hands and knees, Jesus washed those feet. He went to the next disciple, washed his feet, unworthy feet went to the next disciple. We don't know when he got to Peter, but at some point Peter uh, sees Jesus there. He says, Jesus, no. You'll never wash my feet. He's starting to get a hint of it, but he's still, still not there. He still thinks exalted people don't do this. Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And so Peter, being the great theologian he is, said, well, if feet are good, the whole thing's better. You know, wash all of me. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You don't need that. But you do need your feet washed. So he washed Peter's feet. And read the text closely there in John chapter 13. You'll see that Judas Iscariot was there. And Jesus on his hands and his knees came to the feet of Judas Iscariot and washed the feet of Judas. Washed the feet of Judas. And when he had finished, he put his robe back on He said, look, guys, you call me Lord and Master, and you do well, for so I am. But if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. And all the explanations that those guys had in their heads about why they weren't going to wash so-and-so's feet just went right out the window. Everything that they had constructed in their mind that said, I don't have to wash his feet. Why, don't you remember that we had an argument along the way? He said he was the greatest. I said I was the greatest. And obviously he was wrong and he wouldn't agree with me. I'm not going to wash his feet. Don't you remember how, how uh, you know, this, this other disciple over here, you know, when it was time to serve the bread to all the people, he went down the hill, made me walk up the hill with the basket, not washing his feet. 
Don't you remember how he hurt me? Don't you remember what he did to me? Don't you remember the things he said? And Jesus undercut every excuse they had not to love one another. It's a dangerous thing to come to know the love of Jesus who refuses our simplistic self-justifications. And that's why Paul could say, Philemon, I could tell you what to do. You know, and that, that'd be sort of a compulsive thing. But Philemon, if I just show you who Jesus Christ is, you will love him so much and be so attracted to him. You will adore him so much you will want to be like him. And Philemon, I have a lot of trust in what will happen after that. So it says, I'm, I'm just trusting in love to bring that um, about. Uh, verse 10. So I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, had became a Christian. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Uh, the name Onesimus means useful. This, this uh, useless and useful uh, actually is a play on word on the word Greek word Christos, which is so good, close to Christos that we wonder if it's a pun going on. Um, but in verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. See, Paul says, Philemon, you had a certain understanding of Onesimus. And you've sort of built that up in your head. You've, you've got this understand that he's a slave. Well, why is, why is Onesimus a slave? Well, God wants him to be a slave. I mean, after all, uh, isn't that the way God works? And so uh, he's my slave because God wants it that way, and uh, I need to maintain order and discipline in the household that way. And Paul says, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, who's now a brother in Christ. But Onesimus, the way you treat him, that's the way you're treating me. Philemon, my, my heart is invested in this. You don't understand, Philemon. It's not that I have someone who became a convert and now I have directed him to you. It is someone has become my brother and now I love him dearly. It's not just that I know him. It is that I love him. Paul, I'm sending my very, very heart back to you you know it's at that point that you know I, I, I envision Philemon and, and, and Onesimus and Philemon sitting there and Philemon has Jesus in his heart don't we all if you don't I pray you do but you know you have Jesus in your heart oh how I love Jesus and there's Onesimus Jesus is on my side because he's in my heart Oh, how painful it is to know that sometimes we act in such a way that Jesus, sort of like he leaves from our side. I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but he just walks over. He puts his arm around Onesimus, and he says, Philemon, I'm in his heart, and he belongs to me. And how you treat him is how you're treating me. And suddenly everything's cut, cut out from under you. You just can't go along with it anymore. That's, uh, it's just that way. Well, um, it's just a dangerous thing to be around Jesus. Jesus has a way of doing that to you. You, know, you remember the disciples were, were there with Jesus, and word came that, uh, that Lazarus had, had died. 
And uh, um, Jesus said, well, I want to go back to Judea. That's where Lazarus is. I want to go back to Judea because uh, our friend Lazarus has died. And the disciples said, Jesus, don't you remember? Yeah, son of God, do you have a memory left? But anyway, <laughs> said, Jesus, don't you remember the last time you were in Judea, they tried to kill you. Don't you know if you go back now, they're going to try to kill you again? Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, see ya. And he walks out. Now, I, it, you know, if I'm doing one of those dramatic things, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. Coming? Coming? I'm waiting. Jesus, going to Jerusalem. Face to Jerusalem, nothing will break him. Nothing will take him one side or another. It doesn't matter if those guys go or not. He's going to Jerusalem, going to Judea. And at that moment, the disciples are sitting there looking at each other. And Thomas, you remember, doubting Thomas, says, let us go with him that we may die too. And suddenly, the whole drift of Thomas's life and the whole way in which he envisions it unfolding is changed by the fact that Jesus said, I'm going there. And Thomas knew, I've got to go there too. That's why he's courageous, Thomas. He's loving Thomas. He's faithful, Thomas. The kind of Thomas you name your sons after. Well, okay. But, um, verse 13, I have been... Uh, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Philemon, you said you'd pray for me, didn't you? Yeah, Paul. Paul, anything you need. Paul, just let me know. Paul, I'll be praying for you. Paul writes back and says, Philemon, Nesimus came my way. Look how God answered your prayer. You said anything I needed. Here he is. You said you'd pray for me. Here's the answer, prayer. He says, I'd love to keep him with me, to minister on your behalf, to be that reminder that God is faithful in answering your prayer for me through this man, Onesimus. You had no idea he would do it this way, but here's how God works. It's an amazing kind of thing. And Philemon, I would love to have kept him, but Onesimus and I agreed that he should go back to you. I would have been glad to keep him but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. See, Paul is uh, risking quite a bit here. Uh, Onesimus is risking even more here. But the biggest risk of all is the heart and soul of Philemon. I mean, what, what, what's the worst Philemon can do? Legally, he can kill Onesimus. Legally, he can put him to death. Legally, he can beat him to death. Legally. Or if he was kind, he could sell him into the salt mines or to the fields of Rome, which was the lowest and worst slavery of that day. But you know something, I, I think Onesimus kind of understood that, you know, you really shouldn't fear the person who can destroy the body, and after that, they're done. What you need to do is fear the one who, after he destroys the body, can destroy the soul as well. And so Onesimus went back, 
loving Christ more than he feared Philemon. And the biggest risk of all in this story is the heart and the soul of Philemon. Because he can stay where he is. He can say, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good master. You know, I, I take care of my folks and I feed them. I make sure they're well cared for. When they get older, I, I care for them and, and I don't break up their families. You know, all those other things that, that you read about in the antebellum south. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good master, he could have said. And all the world would have stood back and said, yes, Philemon, you are a very good master. Hooray, hallelujah. And all the church people, I suspect, would have said, well, Philemon, oh, he's paying for the snacks today. Yes, Philemon, you're pretty good. That's the way we do it. Or he could listen to the voice of Christ. He could hear the sweet music of a monkey wrench thrown into the gears and the machinery of prejudice and bigotry. And he could rejoice at the jar in his life when the gears of slavery ground to a halt for him and have his life changed. That's, that's the, 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 the risk that's uh, uh, going on here. Look, the reason we talk about it, we are so complacent in our Christian walk and faith. Oh, we, we've got some big ticket items, big things that belong to Jesus. We do for Jesus. Everybody can see we're religious. We, you know, we're Christians. We do this for Jesus. But we harbor so many things in our minds and our hearts from our culture, from our nation, uh, from the media. We, we, we are just so sold out to what the world thinks is good, right, cool, acceptable that we are tied to the world and how grateful we are that Jesus doesn't leave us there he really is the one who takes the machinery of our sin and he tears it up he sabotages us and I'm glad he does I'm glad he does Um, quickly because I can read my watch as well as you can read yours You know, we forget something. We forget how subversive the earliest Christians were. We forget that when they said, Jesus is Lord, they lived in a world that said, Caesar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. Every time a Christian said, Jesus Christos Kurios, they were flying in the face of an entire empire that said, Caesar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. You see, when you said Christ is Lord, he's Lord of my life, you're saying, and Caesar is not. Sure, I pray for the kings and I pray for the emperor. Sure, I'm going to be a good citizen. And yes, I'm going to to pull my weight in the the community life, you know, according to the, the word of God and those kinds of things. But look, when it comes right down to it, I have only one king and one Lord and his name is Jesus. Do you know how subversive that is? Look, in, 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 in the antebellum South, our country, uh, Af- African-American slaves were not allowed to read. It was a crime to teach a slave how to read. Eventually, it became a crime for slaves to meet together to worship. They couldn't have church of their own. Why was that? Why was that? I mean, it's not because they didn't want the, the, uh, the, 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 the slaves to be able to, to read the great literature of history. They didn't want them reading the Bible. 
Because those folks were smart enough to know that wherever the Bible is read, people start singing, go down Moses, way down in Egypt land. You tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. They knew that wherever the Bible is read, people start to look beyond the river, and they see a freedom that God gives. And that freedom that God gives translates into a freedom today. It is a subversive thing to have a church in the midst of society. Why do you think every tyrant, every dictator who has ever existed, the first thing he tries to do is either control or snuff out and get rid of the church, the body of Jesus Christ? Why is it? That is because those who are free in Christ demand freedom not only for the soul but for the body as well. That's how subversive Christians are to be. You're going to go out tomorrow morning and you're going to go into your place of business where you work. You're going to go into your school if you think about it. Go into the marketplace. Talk to your friends. And to the extent that you're in the world, you are subversive to the world. You're saying nutty, ridiculous things like righteousness belongs to God. Our greatest purpose is to honor and glorify him. No, no, we are not something that uh, uh, God is happy and proud to have. We are rather children of grace entirely and completely. No, that language isn't acceptable. No, that attitude isn't acceptable. No, I don't go along with that kind of of lifestyle. No, I don't buy into that casual acceptance of the subjugation of other people either on the edges or overtly. No, I don't think it's funny to joke about how people are stoned out of their minds while their families are being destroyed. No, I don't think there's any joke funny about drugs. See, we're subversives. We're in the world, not of the world, but we're in the world. And the world can't stay the same if we're living for Jesus because our lives can't stay the same. Okay. Zacchaeus found that out. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll, I'll get to this eventually. Zacchaeus found that out. You know, when, when Jesus was coming by and, Jesus, and Zacchaeus ran up, uh, up the tree and said, you know, for the Lord I want to see. And uh, Jesus came down and said, you know, I'm going to your house today, you know, for tea. And... Um, But Zacchaeus in the presence of Jesus. Now, understand who Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. That doesn't mean he just worked for the IRS. That means that he was a tax farmer. Uh, He farmed out the tax system to other people to collect it. And uh, he was the the guy that they all paid off. He got the the kickbacks and the graft and the corruption of the taxes. Uh, He had, it's hard to believe, but in that day, the, the, uh, the taxing service could actually pick and choose whom they wanted to audit and uh, could, you know, could bring like pressure on you if they didn't like you. That's the way it was back then. And, and Zacchaeus did a lot of that, and he was a wealthy man. The, the, the official name for it is he was stinking rich. All because of these taxes that he was levying. Jesus came into his life. And you know that house that Zacchaeus was so proud of? That house that he you know, sort of looked down on everybody else because his house was the biggest and the best. Jesus walked in the door and Zacchaeus was ashamed. And then the whole financial structure of his life was absolutely devastated by the presence of Jesus Christ. And Zacchaeus got, got the point. He said, Jesus, 
I'm going to give half my money to the poor. Rabbi said you couldn't do that. You're only allowed to give 20%. After all, if you gave half, you'd be poor, and then somebody would have to give you money. But, but Zacchaeus said, no, it's not even my money. Half of it goes to the poor, but everybody else, everybody I have defrauded, can you say everyone? I'm going to repay them fourfold, four times as much as I took from them. And in that moment, Zacchaeus wiped himself out financially and ascended into the heights of the glory of God because Jesus sabotaged his idea of money and wealth. See how that happens? That's how it works. Okay. Um, Let's just read read off the paragraph that we done. In verse uh, 15, for this is, uh, by the way, as we read these verses, notice the the interplay of of, uh, contrasting words. We'll try to point these out. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while. The Greek word there is for an hour. So you lost Onesimus for an hour that you might have him back forever. (laughs) You were upset, Philemon, about an hour God wasn't concerned about your hour. He was concerned about eternity. You lost him for a moment. You got him back as a brother for all eternity. No longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. You thought you lost a slave, an item, a piece of inventory. No, you've got a brother now. Somebody to help you worship and help you serve and help you glorify the Father. you got a brother now, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh, just, just sitting there, but in the Lord, because that's what's made all the difference. See, I'm, uh, Jesus was doing this constantly, where, where people had everything figured out, and he'd, he'd walk in and just pull the underpinnings out from under it. Remember the temple in Jerusalem? Uh, Some of you know this. The rest of you are going to find this out right now. But in the temple of Jerusalem, in the building itself, you had the Holy of Holies. This is the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, and nobody could enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest, and that only once a year. Then outside that, you had the holy place, and nobody could go in there except one priest per day could go in there, and he was chosen at random. That's... uh, uh, Zacharias and, 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 and Father John uh, the Baptist. But, uh, but one priest a day could go into the holy place. Outside the holy place was a courtyard of the priests. Only priests could go into the courtyard, and there they offered up the sacrifices and things. Now, outside the courtyard of the priests was the court of Israel, and all the men of Israel could stand there and watch the sacrifices going on. And outside the court of Israel was the court of the women, and they could... Well, they could just hear maybe and see what's going on, and, and, but, but they were a, a little bit more distant, and they, had, they couldn't go any closer than the court of the women. But outside the court of the women was something called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where you and I could go, unless you're of Jewish uh, uh, ethnicity. But, um, you know, the court of the Gentiles, this is as close as we could get looking over the heads of the women and the men of the priests, just seeing the door where we couldn't enter and, hope, and, and, and just knowing that, that the Holy of Holies was in there. That's how far away we were as Gentiles in the temple. Now, 
You remember that Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. You remember that? that? You know, most people say, Jesus got mad. He drove the money changers out of the temple. It's okay for me to get mad now because Jesus got mad. Look, Jesus was not angry when he drove the money changers out. He absolutely was not. It was a prophetic act. The way I read the scriptures, I think he did it every year. I say that because it's at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, the very end of the other three Gospels. And if he, you know, his ministry lasted three years, at least three times he showed up. You know, people would say things like, well, is Jesus coming this year? Yeah, yeah. Has he uh, thrown the people out of the, uh, the money changers out of the temple yet? No? You want to go see it? Yeah, let's go see it. It's a pretty good show. Okay. Every year, I think he did this. Why? He knew those money changers were there. Where were they? They were in the court of the Gentiles. All right? And it's not as though Jesus walked in one day and he said, wow, I had no idea. They, look, look at those people. No, everybody knew they were there. They were there changing money so you had the proper currency to pay the temple tax. They were there to sell sacrificial lambs and doves and, and uh, you know, animals uh, that, that, that you could use for sacrifice, pre-approved and certified by the high priest. So that, you know, instead of walking all the way to the temple to sacrifice, carrying this big, uh, you know, lamb under your arm or something, you could, you could just walk there and buy one when you got there. It was, it was convenient. Everybody knew it. Everybody planned on it. Jesus knew they were there. Everybody knew they were there. But they were in the court of the Gentiles. And in that court of the Gentiles, Jews, you know, Jews used to use it as a shortcut. They come into the Temple Mount in the East Gate and they wanted to get to the other side. They would just cut through the court of the Gentiles because, after all, Gentiles don't matter. And, uh, if, if, you know, if, if you wanted to make noise and talk or something like that or, or play a game on your, on your iPhone... You would, uh, you would go out to the court of the Gentiles because nobody would bother you there. And uh, so, you, you know, they, because nobody cared about the Gentiles. Who really cares about the Gentiles? And so, why not? Let's set up, let's set up the food court uh, and the bookstore in the court of the Gentiles. You know, they've got a mega church here going on. So, that, so the, 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 um, the, the tables of the money changers are in the court of the Gentiles because nobody, nobody cares about Gentiles. Now, Jesus walks in to the temple. And he braids together some cords and stop, starts to drive the money changers out. The money changers out. And he says, This is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. What was he talking about? The court of the Gentiles. When Jesus drove the money changers out, he was saying, look, God loves these Gentiles every bit as much as he loves you Jews. And it's not like worship starts at the wall that begins the court of the women. Worship begins with the Gentiles because my Father loves them. And in that act... And turning over the tables, putting an end to it just for the 15 minutes until he left, because they just put it back. But in that act, Jesus declared, you cannot go and worship God and sacrifice next to the holy place and the holy of holies. You can't do that if you disdain the court of the Gentiles and the people who are here to worship, because this court of the Gentiles is a house of prayer. And you can't think about Gentiles the same way ever again 
Peter found that out when he was called to, to preach to Cornelius, for example. You just can't do it the same. Because Jesus has a way of throwing the monkey wrench into the gears of our prejudice, sabotaging the comfort that we have with the world, calling us out to be something different, something better, something for him. Well, the Jews Jews had religion. Jesus came to set them free from religion and to bring them a relationship with the Father. The Greeks had philosophy. Jesus came to capture every thought of man. The Romans had power. Jesus came to tear down kingdoms and establish his own. This morning, if you have Jesus in your heart, you have a subversive in your midst. Someone who is going to go and eat with the cook, who is going to wash the feet of your worst enemy, someone who is going to love that person you've written off in your life, someone who doesn't care if he has nowhere to lay his head while you're knocking yourself out to have an extra condo somewhere. You're going to find a Jesus in your heart who doesn't see the world the way you do. And every now and then, he's going to break apart that machinery of self-righteous complacency in our lives. I am so glad he does. I praise God that he does not leave us where we are, but calls us to where his son is in the dear kingdom of Christ. Bow with me in prayer, please. Father, there are so many influences on our lives, so many influences on who we are and what we think and how we think and what we do and why we do it. There are so many influences. We, we couldn't, even with a, a thousand years of therapy, we couldn't figure it all out. But, Father, all we need this morning is Jesus. We need more of him. We need to know him better. We need to love him more. We need to serve him more diligently. Because in loving Jesus this way, we are set free from the things of the world. Father, I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. Bring conviction upon us and give us the courage of faith to follow in his steps. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Turn, please, to number 648. 648.